Blog Talk Radio. Reality Radio Entertainment presents Behind the Curtain with your host, Kathy Barrett. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a show about life and how we travel down the not-so-yellow brick road of it. I'm Kathy Barrett, and I hope you'll stay tuned for the next 30 minutes with me as I reveal what's behind the curtain. Happy Tuesday, everybody. What a day. It's like fall here on the East Coast. It's June 26th. It's really amazing. It was quite beautiful on my long meditative walk this morning. Uh, The air was so fresh and the trees were blowing about. It was really a a great way to start my day. And um, I wanted to send out a big virtual hug to music producer Ray Reed. Ray is kind of dealing with a health challenge at the moment, so I just want him to know everyone at Behind the Curtain, we're sending you lots of healing thoughts and love while you're going through this and rooting for you to have a very speedy recovery. Uh, This is going to be a fabulous show today. We have uh, the producer of a documentary called Falling Up, who is on the program, program with us today, Stefan Litvinchuk. And this film is amazing. I saw it um, a couple of months ago. I guess I had uh, a screening of it and I was just blown away by it. So I'm so happy to be able to be presenting audio clips throughout the program today so you all can get a little taste of what the film's about. So let me tell you a little bit about Stefan. He is a graduate of California State University and worked for the International Documentary Association. He is an Emmy-nominated associate producer for the seven-part, seven-hour series on the history of the Hollywood movie empire, Moguls and Movie Stars. He was associate producer, researcher, assistant editor on a four-part, five-hour series called Behind the Masks, the story of the Screen Actors Guild. Stefan's recent project, Falling Up, is a wonderful film with an insightful look at the power of human transformation of two people who overcome drug addiction and homelessness. For more information, go to fallingupdoc.com. Uh, and there you can find out more information about Stefan and the film and the other projects that he also did. So welcome to the program, Stefan. I've been looking so forward to meeting you and having you on today. Thank you very much, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that warm introduction. and Looking forward to the show. Well, you know, it's interesting when I was reading about your background. So you come from Littleton, New Hampshire, which population is 6,000 people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. yes. So did you have many homeless people on the streets of Littleton? <laughs> no, no, no homeless people on the streets of Littleton. Um, definitely not something that you saw openly. Um, lots of people kind of trying to find their ways, including myself as a teenager, sitting on the park bench in front of the library on the main street, which was called Main Street, <laughs> wondering, you know, what are you going to do with your life? What is what is this world that you're living in in this secluded kind of beautiful community and in, 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 in the beautiful mountains? But but no people on the street begging or panhandling or doing the kinds of things you see in, in downtown L.A. Well, it sounds like you came from like a like kind of uh, a movie set in a way, you know, it's like, you know, um, 
the best little possible scenario of, of growing up. So what ignited your passion for giving voice to the voiceless and what were the circumstances that led you to become a socially conscious filmmaker? Uh, I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, even though my, my hometown was this kind of just tranquil, beautiful, serene uh, community, you know, it, it had problems. It had things that, you know, were behind closed doors. And personally, I, I went through a, a, a period of time where I was experimenting and doing different drugs and, mm-hmm. and trying to find my way and exploring the inner and outer worlds of of, of reality. Mm-hmm. And so there was that connection that I had to the addiction and the overcoming of, of that. And it was really academics that that helped me through that and just be getting out of the environment i mean i i think you experience the world by those around you who the your peers and 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 the experiences that are, that are there and so for me it was leaving littleton and and focusing on academics that helped me to, <clears throat> excuse me, transition from that lifestyle and to really focus on video production. And really, in in Bangor, Maine, is where I started making short documentaries and about historical figures and Maine's most famous politician, Hannibal Hamlin, and and I really started getting fascinated with with um, telling stories of people and especially people. Who, who've done great things. And um, so, but the roots of my awareness of, of just social issues and, and, and people uh, in need really um, is rooted in my mother. She was a nurse, uh, somebody that worked with, with people with mental illness. So I was always around people who, were a little different in in a way that were in need of support and and the humanity and the support that my and the love and care that my mother provided unconditionally was was really rooted in my in my heart and and so there were all these connections that that made me once I I finished college in in 2001 in Bangor with my associates in television production I set my sights for California, and I enrolled in AmeriCorps, which is the Domestic Peace Corps, mm-hmm. and I did that in Fresno, California, and that's where I really first, for the first time, saw poverty on a on a pretty big scale, where it was, you know, on the streets and and more so at the organization I worked for, which was Catholic Charities in Fresno, California, so. I on a day-to-day basis was, you know, just the offices were were there where people were doing intake and and getting food from the food bank and there was a thrift store and there were immigration services and refugee services and and really just this amazing organization that was there to support people from all walks of life, both in this country and out who were here to to have their lives improved and and through these services and it was really heartening to 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 experience that and to see people you know supporting one another in the community i read so it was, it was, mm-hmm. 
No, I'm sorry. I just wanted to um, share with the listeners that this this is like a very humbling uh, figure to know that more than 46 million Americans live in poverty. And, uh, you know, part of the organization that you joined up with, the AmeriCorps VISTA, is a national service program designed specifically to fight poverty. So uh, individuals like yourself, you know, sign up and then you take your skills and your abilities and and then you bring them into this organization in the hopes of helping um, some of the disenfranchised, uh, you know, giving them the opportunity to see their dreams realized. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was it was an incredible program, and I and and for me, I wanted to do Peace Corps, but I wasn't that um, adventurous at the time. You know, having mm-hmm. been raised in New England, I hadn't really been out of New England internationally, so I, I you know, that wasn't something that I was ready to do. But when I found out about AmeriCorps, I was very excited because here's an opportunity for me to volunteer, to support a community, and to also get acclimated to California. Mm-hmm. I did apply for a job in Los Angeles and didn't get it, but I did end up in Fresno, and it didn't matter to me where it was in California. California was was uh, the first step to getting to Los Angeles, and, and that was the opportunity that, that was provided, and I happily accepted. And It was an incredible experience, and I think anybody getting out of college is wondering, what am I going to do with you know, after graduation and, you know, I want to kind of decompress from the the pressures of school and academics and, and, and connect and really understand society on a different level where you're actually involved in a way that you are giving back and you're getting, getting just as much as you're receiving, if not more. It, it really is, it was a, an incredible opportunity for me to, to learn about refugees, to learn about homeless to learn about all these services and to really see the compassion and empathy of people supporting um, you know communities that, that need that and you know seeing that people everybody is is capable of doing amazing things and extraordinary things on a daily basis and and so that was really something that nurtured me to to uh, to you know, get acclimated to social issues, and then to eventually, when I came to Los Angeles, to to take on the major issue of homelessness, which is one of the largest social issues. And being the homeless capital of, of the United States, it's it's in numbers. There's the sheer numbers of homeless people even now. I mean, like eight or nine times the number of people in my hometown. So yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's a huge problem. It really is. And, I, you know, what you said, it, it's such wonderful advice, really, for uh, young people out there just graduating because it, it's, it should be a requirement in a way because think about the state of the planet if it was a requirement because if everyone came out as connected as you did and, you know, the quality of work that uh, you did in, in the films that you worked on even before making um, Falling Up – uh, it just adds so much value to the planet. It, it's really Absolutely. remarkable. And mm-hmm. so yeah, what... I'm really excited. I I mm-hmm. know there's a lot of like, um, you know, there's volunteer hours and community service or whatever that that you know my I live in Culver City, California, and my kids are just just finished kindergarten. But I, I know at the the high school level that they have community service hours where they are able to connect into um, into you know not just 
expect a paycheck, but to connect in a way to these organizations that are doing great work and don't usually get paid the most amount of money. But you know, there's things in life that are worth more than money, and and um, those experiences are really priceless. And absolutely. So, what led you to create Falling Up? Well, Falling Up, you know, when I when I moved to Los Angeles, I was I was by myself. Um, Prior to that, I was with my fiance from Japan, who really inspired me to to take the leap and to to accompany me on that journey across the country. Um, but she went back to Japan, and and then I was in Los Angeles, and you know I was really overwhelmed and, and amazed seeing the the sheer number of people on the streets. And being in Los Angeles with a without a car and taking public transportation and riding a bicycle, I think, you know, you're much closer to the social issue of homelessness when you're not just driving by it or, 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 you know, nowhere near downtown LA. So there was something about it that I knew, you know, that was something that I wanted to take on to tell a story about. And it was in actually in Santa Monica when when I met somebody for the first time who was homeless and I sat down on the park bench and I, I felt this person, you know, I, I wanted to, it was like the first homeless person that I actually spoke to. And I really just had to break the barrier that I put up in front of me of, of any fears or, or stereotypes or, or ideas that, you know, this person, um, you know, the way that they may react or or or, or whatnot. So I mean, I really just felt like, why is it that I feel this way towards a homeless person? What, what's holding me back from really just stepping outside of my comfort zone and and talking to a fellow human being mm-hmm. who's going through something and learning through their experience and and through their um, through their thoughts. So I sat down with this guy and I was talking to him, not, you know, like interrogating or anything, but just asking him, you know, like who he is and, and, and his circumstances. And, and this man was, I mean, honestly, just so articulate and, and really made a lot of sense about why he was choosing the street life and, um, and you know he he was saying that he was saving money so he could he could move to a different part of the world where he could he could live more comfortably uh, on less money that things are so much so expensive in in the city and but you know he wasn't delusional he wasn't um, you know I don't know it's it's amazing when especially when you grow up in a small town and maybe you rely a lot on movies and, and the media to portray certain, um, certain people or, or communities that that's what's ingrained in your mind. So you just live with that and think, okay, well that's that population. And maybe I don't have to ever interact with them because I, there's, there's no reason to. Yeah. yeah. But I think when you become socially aware and interested and for me, I mean, I really felt like okay, I could read about it. I could, I could watch more movies, but I want to actually talk to people, and I want to, uh, as an anthropologist, 
um, sit down and, and interact with people. And and it was that conversation that really made me feel comfortable that I could talk to more people. Mm-hmm. So that one conversation just opened me up. And when when I was attending Cal State LA, I decided that, you know, I'm going to make a documentary about homelessness. And that's when I set out to, to meet people from different walks of life and and to um, produce a short 15-minute film in six weeks, which was a lot to take on, but it was completed, and and that was the, the start of a eight-year project <laughs> of falling up. Well, let's take a moment. I just want to play a little bit from the film and introduce the listeners to your main subject, one of your main subjects, uh, Johnny Pop. And so you're going to be basically um, hearing uh, his voice first as interviewed by Stefan on the street and then Stefan's narration about the circumstances that led to Johnny's homelessness. So let's take uh, a few moments to hear this. We're in downtown Los Angeles, California, sunny California. This is winter for what it's worth. Well, I came to California to die here. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not going anywhere. See, that's the thing about being homeless. These people who, who like myself, like I was, you know, I had I had the condominium and the new car and the credit card. Mm-hmm. You know, I had all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I saw homeless people, you know, and um, I, mean, I I looked down on them because they weren't playing the game. You need to have a job. You need to pay rent. You need to be off of the street and have a home. You you need to take responsibility. You know, you know what? I don't need to do none of that. On February 3, 1948, Johnny Pop was born in Pontiac, Michigan, the oldest child in a family of seven. Johnny's dad was a master mechanic, and his mom worked part-time as a waitress. The family later moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Johnny attended public schools. In high school, Johnny wanted to be one of the cool guys. Cool in the 1960s meant dropping out of school, having money, and a nice car to show off. That lifestyle didn't work out for Johnny, but it did get him a girlfriend named Linda, and the two dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Johnny then made a living doing general labor jobs. Johnny and Linda were married in 1968 and had a son named Dwayne in 1970. As a new father at age 22, he was hired as a union machinist by the Hoover Ball and Baron Company in Ann Arbor. Johnny was looking forward to going into management, but it was interrupted by a war 8,000 miles away. I was in Vietnam, and I was not thinking, well, I'm defending the United States. I'm thinking, I'm going to shoot this son of a bitch before he shoots me. I want to go home. I'm, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. It took me two and a half years to forget one of the nightmares. You just don't see blood and guts and people, people splattered all over, and, and, and they just don't bother you. I see my best friend, and I'm blowed up with a landmine. Two days after we're there, 21 years old. I went to basic training with this guy. I went to AIT with this guy. He was a cab driver from Detroit. His name was Magruder, but I called him Magumba. A little short, chubby black guy. <clears throat> Second day we were in Vietnam, he stepped on a landmine. You could hear it, man. Click! 
and it can blow up as long as you stand there, but you let at least a bit of pressure off, and you're a dead man. Well, I've seen that mine blow half a half a Magumba up. You just don't forget about things like that. Johnny left the Army in 1974. Haunted by his experiences in Vietnam, he turned to alcohol and marijuana to soothe his pain. His addictions led to a divorce. He began traveling the country, doing odd jobs, and ended up in Kansas where he met Mary. He adopted her religion of Christianity, and the two were wed in 1980. With a new person in his life, Johnny decided to change his focus on alcohol and drugs to other things. They both attended Friends Bible College, where Johnny studied theology with the plan of being a prison chaplain. He chose the prison system as his ministry because he felt people were being warehoused without improving their literacy and life skills, which would help them make better choices in their life and reduce their chances of ending up back behind bars. Johnny had a reality check when he was told by a prison warden that prisoners are there to be punished, not for rehabilitation. In 1987, Johnny got his associate's degree and was admitted into the social work program at Arizona State University. That winter, Mary was also continuing her education to become a beautician. She was on her way to school one snowy morning and never returned home. My wife got killed in a car accident. She was in intensive care for a couple weeks and just passed on. And when she died, it just seemed like part of me died. I walked out with the clothes on my back and I've been almost there since. I give up. I don't vote. I don't file income tax. I don't play the game anymore. This is my life. We're back, and uh, you've just heard an audio clip from the film Falling Up, and I'm with our special guest, the producer and creator of the film, uh, Stefan Litwinchik. And, uh, wow, I mean, you know, He's such an amazing character. I mean, you really picked on someone that so represents every person. Any of what happened to Johnny could happen to any of us. And um, I was uh, really drawn to him uh, from the first um, from the first um, moment that he's on film. It, he, you're just totally involved in his story. And so what was the filming process like for you, Stefan? Were you living on the streets with him while you were doing this? How how did you film them? Um, yeah, um, I mean, that clip definitely kind of encapsulates and, and gets into his whole world, which, you know, I didn't know a lot of that until much later. And definitely he was captivating and so candid on camera from the beginning that I really felt connected to this person. And um so, but yeah, the process, um, I didn't, I slept on the streets several nights, but not for like this long period of time. Um, basically I did a lot of the filming when I was in college. So I was going, you know, in between classes or, or in the weekend and just connecting with him to, to really just focus on what his life is like. How does he survive on the streets? So 
I would just show up and and document him going about his his day and and um definitely was I I needed to get the whole day. I wanted to get him sleeping. I wanted to get him getting dressed and then doing all his things and and eating and all that. So I I probably spent about 5 days on the streets with him. Um for like 24 hours just following him everywhere and and giving him some time to breathe because you know, here's this guy and he's and honestly sometimes I was affecting his his business because you know, he panhandles and and you get a camera guy shooting, it's it's a little awkward and most people would not give because of that or sure. think it's staged or they think it's a film. Is this guy really homeless or is this a fiction film? I mean, we are in Los Angeles in Hollywood, so this is um but no, I mean really what it was is um really connecting to with with Johnny and and, and developing our relationship. We spend more time off camera of course than on. Mm-hmm. And I, I really took the time to respect him and, and his life and and who he is. And I was just very honest and sincere and 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 asking him to, to to experience his world, to bring his world to the screen to, to in this film. And and we really connected, um, I think, pretty quickly. And, and you know, he he said in times that he, he never thought I was gonna show back up he thought okay well this guy's gonna just do something for an hour and i'll never see him again but you know right. I get back <laughs> yeah so, um, yeah and also it's very obvious that you guys have a connection i mean because it was a big commitment on his part here he is living on the streets and yet he was in the long haul with you for what oh, yeah. was six years or eight years well it was eight years until i finished it mm-hmm. uh, but it was about three years of, of him going through his, his transformation. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's play, speaking of the panhandling, and that kind of l- leads into, you know, he makes money to do drugs. Mm-hmm. And then basically in this clip, which I love, is um, you also get uh, uh, the police department's kind of point of view about dealing with the drugs and the homelessness issue mm-hmm. downtown. So we're going to play that now from the film. I've had people out. give me as little as three cents. I had as much as a lady give me $60 one night. It seems like the ones that help you the most are the ones that can afford it the least. All my life I've been impulsive and impatient. You know, I have no patience. But I've learned to uh, be patient, you know. When you're standing here for over an hour and, and nobody's, nobody's giving you a damn thing, you just have to keep telling yourself, you know, somebody's going to come and they're going to give you some money. They used to have a law against panhandling. That's a violation of First Amendment rights, freedom of speech. Panhandling provides resources for Johnny's daily survival, but it also supports a sad reality for many on the streets. I didn't use drugs before um, before I went to Vietnam. I just started smoking crack until uh, 1991. This girl I knew, I met, you know, in, in Phoenix, um, got me to try it. And I liked it, and it liked me, and it's been like that ever since. <coughs> if I'm really what I do, I work my sign. I get enough some dope, come down here, I smoke some dope, I go back to work. You get some more, I come back. I make trips back and forth. This little, this little shopping cart, she, she's got a lot of miles on her. I've been smoking dope here for seven, ever since I came to LA for years. The cops don't fuck with us here, because if they do, what are we going to do? We're going to relocate. 
Well, they don't want them to relocate. They've been selling dope at Fifth and Crocker for years. I mean, years. And, and, and so the old cops, they, they, don't, they don't fuck around down there because they know what's happening. The world of the streets is populated by more than people like Johnny Pop. There are others who live with the reality of homelessness in other ways. And half-naked women running around, people using drugs, and this is right down the street from the station. I love how people say, well, this is happening right by the station. That says something about you guys. Well, we can't see through the walls. And also our, our uniforms uh, officers were so strapped call-wise to where they'd probably be over here handling a dead body or down the street on Fifth Street having, handling a, uh, a rape or a, or a violent assault or a robbery, that, yeah, a crime could happen right here, and there's literally nothing we could do about it. Central Division has been trying to get resources to police Skid Row for years. When I first came to Central Division, uh, 11 years ago. Before I came, they told me, uh, Joseph, uh, if you go to Central, the cops are fat and lazy, and they, people sell drugs right behind the station. When I got here, I only found one aspect of that true. The cops weren't fat and lazy. They were outnumbered, and they weren't supported by the other echelons of the justice system when we were trying to go after the wolves who were preying on the sheep. But yes, people were even dealing drugs right behind the station. Well, let's try. Let's go get some uh, kids from the academy and see if we can spread them over Skid Row and see if that'll help. And that worked for like the first couple of weeks, but the problem was the streets out there knew those officers were pretty green. So basically they got ran over and they couldn't handle it. It's it's interesting also in, in the film, um, you, we learn about the mayor's plan uh, called the Saver City Initiative, which was launched in 2006. And basically it it was to hire 50 additional police officers for for that area to stop minor violations like jaywalking and littering because they felt that would um that could lead to reducing more serious crimes and um it it ended up where the new office officers uh you know paying for them cost actually more than a lot of the homeless services so what was your experience because you were down there involved with the community at the time what was your experience of the impact of this plan um and you know what it had on the community. Yeah, no, the, you know, it was the Safer Cities Initiative. I mean, it, it was a solution, but I don't know if it was the solution. And it's got a lot of criticism. And, and that's why in the film I, I present it along with uh, an academic point of view and, and, a, and a social activist point of view about it. Um, you know, the complexity of, of homelessness and and all the, all the um, potential solutions for each individual, because it is an individual, an individualized um, solution. I mean, we can group people together like this could, these services could help these people and this and that, but it's, it's a real challenge when you have somebody like Johnny Pop who doesn't want to, to, um, to receive those services or has had a bad time with it, either with paperwork or, or with um, certain rules that he doesn't want to follow or or whatnot. So, but no, the safer cities. I mean, the fact that yeah, it, I mean the that's sort of um, I don't know the word chaos is coming to mind, but I mean it was <laughs> yeah. a very kind of wild <clears throat> street. I mean the streets were really wild, and the police officer says, you know, people were dealing drugs right behind the station. I mean, yeah. It was like, what do we do? You know, they, they've been wanting to get resources, and 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 how do you, when you deal with an issue like homelessness, which is, 
which um, the resources to support that this major social issue, um, you know, it's a cross sector of society in supporting such when it's medical and and um, you know criminal things that happen, um, you know, resources from religious services, resources just from nonprofits. Mm-hmm. How do they all come together to support um, support you know people transitioning off the street and I guess you know, the police decided that well we don't have enough people and people are committing crimes and and um, that was their approach. Yeah, that's just, yeah. I mean, and, I mean, and you I, have to try something, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> and I and I yeah. don't discount I mean, or or feel like um, I mean that's what they knew how to do. That's what they do, right. and that's what right. uh, Dr. Kleiman of UCLA says. It's like you know they. This is what they knew how to do. Everyone looked like a a nail, and so they kind of, you know, hammered or, or arrested anybody that was doing such activities. And, and if you're down on the streets of Skid Row, Los Angeles, I mean, it's so the streets are so heavily populated with people who don't have homes and are the homeless on the streets pushing shopping carts and sleeping in tents. And, and you know, the, it's just natural to cross the street at any time or or right. things are dropped on the ground all the time because yeah. it's a city so, with no rules really you know it really yeah no yeah. i was down there one time and npr and some other um networks were doing uh stories as they have fortunately you know to raise awareness mm-hmm. but they were talking about it being like some you know just another world i mean it's 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 really like you know what are the rules and and um and where, where's the, you know, the order? I mean, you go there and people are shooting up on the streets and doing all these things. And it's, it's like, you know, what what can you do to... Um, it's a very complicated issue. And what I love about your film, yeah. it, it encapsulates the complex issues one by one surrounding the drug and homeless problem. And you do very well. You present the plight of the healthcare workers serving the homeless, the, you know, um, police department. It's a huge issue to take on in an hour yeah. film, and you do it very well. So was this originally in part of your concept to cover, you know, these issues in your film, or did this kind of happen as the film was being made? Um, yeah, no, it was very challenging to, to try to do it and to compress all this information in this short amount, and especially for anybody uh, you know, not aware of the structures of society and, and or or how they all kind of interconnect. I mean, it, I mean, it was something that I was always interested in. I mm-hmm. didn't know if I could make a film about it. I mean, it's especially because I, I, I mean, I wasn't, you know, as much as I interviewed all these people and got their stories and and knew that these were the spokespeople from these organizations. Um, you know, I, I did the best I could by myself to to really ask the right questions and to and to encapsulate all these perspectives on on this issue. So mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to do it, and I and I was fortunate to get the support of um, people I worked with on those other projects you mentioned, the Emmy nominated and the you know these other yes. series. I was able to get support to, to help me kind of consolidate information into the narration. Mm-hmm and to get my ideas across and to weave that around Johnny's story, which, you know, is the heart of it and his experience and his kind of the theme, the universal themes that he 
uh, expresses as someone who's gone through so much tragedy and, and loss and, and um but um in overcoming in the end but um so yes it was it was definitely something I wanted to do and I, mm-hmm. I did the best I could it is mm-hmm. my first film <laughs> no I think you did a masterful here. job you really did a masterful job because it presents it as a matter of fact I think this is I mean something that you can bring into detox centers and and both the staff and uh, those enrolled in in fighting addiction. You know, it's a great thing for them to see, for politicians, for healthcare workers. It really, um, it's an inspirational film. And Thank you. it presents the reality of the problem. It presents the possibilities of how to solve it. And it's a perfect example of when the um, all of the agencies are working together, how it can be, how it can Ooh. work. And yeah. so it's, I think, you know, I would love to see this all across the country, you know, being played and, and because it's really educational as well as um, inspirational. So let's totally. let's get back to Johnny's story, because, okay. you, you know, you've heard the, the tragedy that we mentioned. The guy has been through a lot. He's now, you know, addicted to crack. He was what, like 104 pounds at one point. He yeah. He's basically skin and bones, mm-hmm. but such a philosopher, such a comedian, such an yes. intelligent man uh, with a lovely nature, just calling things as as they are, uh, very truthful in his um, insight about himself and his view of the world. And then he goes missing for several months. Um, so I'm going to play a little clip so we can hear what's going on with that. After three months, Johnny was still missing. Finally, he turned up once again at the L.A. County Hospital, a victim of a street attack that almost killed him. In a phone call, Johnny explained his disappearance. I was over there, you know, L.A. Street and the freeway. They got me down on the ground and kept taking me. I gave them the money because they were big. They had times I broke a couple ribs, two ribs, uh, my hip. So I was in pretty bad shape. They tried to kill me. The only thing they killed me because some cars came. They got scared and ran. It looked like Johnny's life had hit a dead end, but the social service safety net offers him one more chance. The question is, will he take it? After nine days in the general hospital, Johnny was sent to the Bonnie Bray Nursing Home, a few blocks west of downtown Los Angeles. He came here with ambulance. He was really skinny at that time, with long bird. The... Diagnosis when we admitted him is a right hip fracture. We have to transfer him from bed to wheelchair, then wheelchair to the bathroom. He has the urge to go to the bathroom, but the problem is that he cannot do it by himself. I'm here with poor people, crazy people, uh, people like me got hurt. Give <laughs> enough drugs, man, that I, I can make a meal out of them. He weighs like 108 pounds. Up to the present, he gained 22 pounds. When Johnny was first came here, he said that how long I would be staying in this place. And then I answered to him that, do you have a home where you are going to? And then he said, no, I live only in, in the street. I said that, please consider this place as your home. This is a better home for you. I mean, that really is amazing. It's like all the stars were in alignment for Johnny at this point because... Um, 
because of a disability that he had from uh, an earlier time, he had lost vision in one eye. And so he was, uh, because he had this disability, he was able to go into a nursing home, um, which gave him the opportunity to really not only physically get better, but he was able to go through detox and then just get really the the kind of care and attention uh, that he might not have gotten, you know, had he not had the disability because this was more of a long-term process. So, and that's the other thing about addiction that I've uh, come to understand. I have, um, you know, uh, family problems. I lost my brother to addiction. And, uh, the issue is that short term, you can't solve a problem like this. I mean, it takes a lot of, of different kinds of uh, people to come in to help and not just physically aid uh, the people that are struggling with addiction, but there's a lot of different processes that they need to go through in order to really um, have sobriety and in a secure place. And so he had that opportunity, which is really, really wonderful. Definitely. Yeah, no, he, you know, it was, it was fascinating to see him go through this because, of course, every moment that I was there with him, I was wanting him to, you know, to get off the streets and to and to get over the addiction. You know, myself having gone through an experience not as extreme, more of a kind of a youthful kind of thing, but but still just this compassion and seeing this man, you know, smoking himself to, to death in, in a way. And, and just, the, I know, the unsafe conditions that he was in. And, and you know, as much as that beating, um, you know, it's a horrible act, it really was something, at least metaphorically, that um, really gave him a moment to really reflect on, on how he's living his life. And, and, and knowing that, you know, it's probably, you know, would you rather, I mean, the, the idea of dying on the streets, suffering and, and pain and um, I don't know, it's just that experience for him really just kind of shook his world and realized that, you know, this this isn't um, the place for me. And, and mm-hmm. if an addict ODs or, or is robbed or has some major events, I mean, it, it can it can work out. In, in his favor to some degree, you know, that you really need to just kind of snap out of it or to really get the, um, the self-confidence and, and the feeling of that. Okay. I can, I can live without that. And as much as that was sort of a self-medication after his wife was killed in the car accident and just all the trauma and, and just kind of giving in to that euphoric feeling that that drug provided him, you can get that by other means. But if, if you haven't had that for so long and, it, and it's kind of ripped away from you, that that joy that he had in his life with his wife, um, it, it's hard to overcome that. And it doesn't yeah. just happen quickly. And, uh, you know, just you can't just accept, expect somebody to just change their thought so quickly. And, you know, and it does take time and a support system and people to care for you. And as the nurse said, you know, you, this is a better place for you. You know, this, Absolutely. this is it. And you need those voices. You need those compassionate people. Just as, you know, I imagine my mom who supported all those people when I was being raised. Well, um, of course, we're going to go a little over. Can you hang with us, Stefan? Yeah, okay, because I want to continue playing this. Yeah, and it was really, I mean, I 
you know, I just want the listeners to know this is only a small, what you're hearing on this program is just a tiny piece of the story. There are so many more twists and uh, twists and, and turns to it that uh, it's, I really, really strongly recommend that you go and, and, and see this film. You will not be um, sorry. So I want to play another uh clip which I labeled love will save the day and it's it's like in your wildest imagination would you ever uh, guess that this would happen to him um, I would have continued back on the same path I was on and probably I'd be dead by now at the nursing home Johnny was able to explore other kinds of relationships you came right after I did huh? yeah you were there before I was but not very long no, not right now, but a month. I think it was for Thanksgiving. When I seen you standing there, you looked at me and I looked at him. We smiled at each other. Then we started talking, remember? Yeah. What's your name? He told me. I told you. Then we started getting together and getting to each other, know each other more and more. <laughs> now I think it's more than being friends. Ellen Lorraine Marquez was born in 1943 in Wyoming. For a few years, she worked on a California farm, picking fruits and vegetables as a field hand. She later worked as a nurse's aide. In 1965, she had her first of five children. Lorraine's husband was an alcoholic and physically abusive to the family. She eventually divorced him and took the children. As a single mom and working several jobs, her occasional drinking turned to alcoholism, an addictive experience she shares with Johnny. Drink every day, every day, every day. And my nose was bleeding, a great big old bottle like that, full of blood. And that's when they took me to the general. Yeah. The general, that's when they brought me to Bonnie Prayer. I got cirrhosis of the liver. The doctors told me, Lorraine, you drink again? You're not going to live right now. Your liver's just going to dissolve. So, take your pick, quit drinking, or you're going to die. I said to myself, well, of course I love my kids, and of course I got to think of myself, my health. And now, I, I see a can of beer, I don't even, even have taste for it. I, and even the smell of it makes me sick of it. I'm going to try to get him to church. Yeah, I'll go with you. And ask uh, our Lord for our blessing. Well, I'm not going to do all that, but well, I'll go. I will ask the Lord for our blessing. Okay. That He gave us this opportunity to meet each other. Well, does that upset you because I'm not Catholic? It doesn't matter if you're Hallelujah, Mormon, Christian, whatever, or nothing. To me, what concerns me is how I feel about you. Oh, I ain't that nice. To me, I love you as you are uh -huh. and what you are. I love you. Same here. <laughs> well, we settled that. <laughs> I mean, who would have ever imagined that? <laughs> Not only would he become clean and sober and, you know, just, I mean, if you, when people look at the film, you will see the visual difference in him as a crack addict living on the streets at 104 pounds. And then while he's in the nursing home, how he, you know, 22 or whatever amount of weight he gained, he's so healthy, but he looks like a different person. You wouldn't, Absolutely. you wouldn't really connect them being the same person. And then he meets Lorraine 
and it was like everything, all the tragedy that had happened to the both of them throughout their lives were leading them to this moment to meet each other. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I cried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 incredible. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful for the opportunity to to share this this story and and this potential and and hope for for anybody, not to say everybody will fall in love, but at least to regain their self-confidence and friendships and, and, and you know, know that people can start over at any point. And, and Johnny and Lorraine are, I mean, yeah, I think they, they were ready for this and they both were open and at a time that, um, I don't know, this was a need they still had. And, and at their age and in their yeah it's it's really, really something it, it is so beautiful because it was such a gift to be able to witness both of these people courageously overcoming their addictions and then not only that but we witnessed the process in which it happened and so i really would love to see every city agency around the country and the healthcare professionals police departments politicians should all be required to view your film to understand what's possible because like you said and you started out it's it's really interesting that you said you began by sitting on that bench and really looking at your own judgments about being able to comfortably you know, engage a homeless person in conversation. And yet that's the gift in terms of the film that you gave to us, Stefan. Mm -hmm. well, you, thank you. You really gave that back to us, so it would be wonderful for everybody to see it. And um, how did this impact your life? Because, I mean, you put in <clears throat> many, many years doing this. So Yeah, no, it, it really it really opened me up to the possibilities of, of um, allowing stories of hope and inspiration be a way to um uh to be raise people's awareness about major issues such as homelessness and drug addiction and to do it in a way that shows that this is something that can be overcome this is something that can change and people do change and as much as we can look at people suffering and and having uh and dying and and and, and just you know, not making it. There are always these stories of hope and, and transformation, and and I want to be able to tell those stories. Um, I didn't expect Johnny to go through the transformation. I hoped for it, but you know, mm -hmm. in a documentary, you're kind of just um, going with the flow and, and experiencing uh, what's there and trying not to 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 change anything. And, and so, um, I think. It really gave rise within me to know that this is these are the stories I'd like to tell. Um, you know, it's 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 really a gift for me to to grow and to to see the beauty that that is within each person and and that changes is possible. And so these are the kinds of stories I, I want to focus on. So now I you know it's 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 a beautiful thing to imagine and. It, um, you know, I can only hope that if I took on another issue and I was following somebody going through it, that they would get through it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, I'm I'm just so grateful for, to have this story and and to um, and to attract more similar stories and experiences my way, so that I can continue to uplift and inspire, and to know that change is possible and it happens all the time. And how are you marketing this film? 
Uh, I have uh, a distributor right now that's doing the digital, so it's going to be online. It's going to be on the major platforms on Google and Amazon and and, and those types of um, streaming services and buying the DVD. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen in a couple months. Prior to that, I'm I'm submitting it and have got permission from the Oprah Winfrey Network, who has seen the trailer and is very excited about it. They want to see the film in entirety, so I'm actually mailing that out today. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, and, uh, I've been in touch with the, the Ellen DeGeneres show. I want mm-hmm. to connect with them. And and I've submitted it to PBS, to their POV series, the Point of View series. Perfect. Which is right at the, uh, this film is right at that alley. Um, also, uh, the film did have its initial television broadcast in my beautiful hometown of Littleton <laughs> uh, a few days ago. And my high school video production teacher told me he's got a lot of good feedback. And he himself, Mr. O'Connor, um, told me that his per- perception of homelessness really changed after seeing the film. And and it's it's really gratifying for me to know that, uh, you know, as much as I changed and, and moved out of Littleton and, and opened my world up um, through my personal experience, I'm now able to bring those experiences back to my hometown and to the community to, to see outside of Los Angeles through the, the or, or outside of Littleton through the eyes of somebody who was raised there. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. And, you know, some, it will be available. The trailer's on my website and, and um, yeah, it should be on, Hopefully on Oprah Winfrey in a, in a few months. That's really exciting. I'm I I mean the power of this film is that, as I mentioned, it really gets us to think twice about the people that we pass every day on the street. Every person out there is a Johnny Pop or a Lorraine. It's yes. as simple as that. And Absolutely. If, if we carry that with us throughout the day, anything is possible. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and for, you know, the work that you do. Your film is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful in terms of uh, what it provides um, to the human spirit. Anyone watching it will walk away feeling all kinds of emotions and just opening up uh, the possibility of how you view the world. So thank you so much for the sacrifices you made to do that and for introducing us to Johnny Pop and Lorraine. There are two people that I, I think the world is really um, going to be supporting in a massive way. Going thank you so forward. much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. And so let me uh, announce the website again. It's uh, fallingupdoc.com. So make sure you go there and keep posted about what's happening with the film because uh, you don't want to miss that day that it airs on the Oprah Network. Yeah, if people can go to my Facebook page and like the page, they can uh, stay informed about when it airs and, and, and stay connected. Fantastic. Well, Stefan, I, again, I want to thank you. I'm so full of gratitude for uh, your presence on my show uh, today, and we wish you continued success. And, you know, I invite you to come back anytime to discuss any project you're working on and Thank let us so know much. how you're doing. You know, Absolutely. With Thank you, film. Kathy. Thank you okay. for the amazing show and for for opening up uh, people's minds and our hearts to so many stories. And it's, a, it's an honor to be on your show.
Thank you so much, Stefan. I just want to tell everybody, next week, the lovely Carol Bettino, psychologist and author, will be here, and we'll be doing a show called The Mirror Reflection. should be interesting. This is Kathy Barrett, sending you a virtual hug from behind the curtain. It was so great to have you along on this journey, and I'll be back next week, so I hope you'll join me for another 30 minutes of Behind the Curtain. Peace, everybody. <laughs>